The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning again, those of you who started out at the beginning of the set, and a special good morning to those of you who tiptoed into the Zoom room a few minutes after that. Happy to be with you. And today I'm going to offer just a few reflections on practicing with the stories that our minds create about ourselves, about reality, sometimes even the stories that maybe we've internalized from families, culture, so much dukkha, so much suffering and discomfort, and so much awakening and freedom can come from how we relate to our stories. So we'll just offer a few words about how these stories intersect with our practice, especially including so-called deep practice, quietude, but really all forms of practice. So there are the day-to-day stories we tell ourselves, and there are what are called deep stories or Gil Fronstall calls them source stories. The term deep stories was come up with by um, a sociologist, I believe, that's her form of science named Arlie Hostra. And she's talking about a metaphor or an image or some kind of almost mythic story, often implicit, that when someone is able to tell it, really describes some aspect of how we see reality at a deeper level. It can be a very personal story. It's often a collective story, too. And it operates, sometimes unseen, beneath our mind and heart's daily storytelling, narrative making, which we humans do. It's perhaps the most fundamental, basic form of language is to build narrative. Cognitive neuroscientist Merlin Donald says, language is basically for telling stories. A gathering of postmodern industrial Westerners around the family table, changing anecdotes and accounts of recent events, doesn't look that much different than a similar gathering of people in the Stone Age. Talk flows freely, entirely, almost entirely in the narrative mode. Stories are told and disputed, and eventually a collective version of recent events is gradually handed out. The narrative mode is perhaps the most basic product of language. So I say this in part because often in meditation, we're encouraged to let go of stories, right? And for good reason. Very good reason. If we're attached to them in such a way that they define reality every moment, there's not an opportunity to shift them. And even when we let go of them, if they're not examined every now and then, they can define our behavior, our relationship to reality, our relationship to others, even to the Dharma, to awakening itself by these implicit sort of narrative lines. Right. So today I'm going to talk just about 
a little reframing and other supportive ways of practicing the stories, all of which involve changing perspective, sometimes from content to process, sometimes shifting to sensation, investigation, or stepping back into awareness, or shifting the meaning making. So that first area, shifting the meaning making, often can be called reframing. And I'm remembering this. I have a good friend who, um, classic introvert, sat a ton of self-retreats during COVID. So, you know, lives alone and was on self-retreat. And he's a homeowner. And one of the things that really just... um, well, maybe a lot of people who sit self-retreat at home have noticed this. There's um, the chores, the things that need to be done at home when you spend a lot of time at home. And when meditating, they become a lot more obvious to some people. And so, wow, he was just not into the drudgery of doing these chores. It was a drag. And like every little, you know, undone thing in the house was sort of leaping out as this oppressive drudgery. I see nods. This is familiar, right? And at a certain point, it was really beautiful. On one of these retreats, he was able to reframe this process from drudgery to cleaning his own temple. Cleaning his own temple. And it completely transformed the relationship to what needed to be done and how it was done. There's a a similar, very famous story. You guys have probably heard this. I think I've even told this. In this group, about three stonemasons, some versions of the story call them bricklayers. And they're kind of all working on this massive, massive project. I think it's like a cathedral or something. And a person comes along and asks each of them in sequence what they're doing. And the first stonemason is um, just basically says, you know, I'm working with rocks. It's a drag, but it's a living. Here I go, working with rocks. The person goes a little ways further down because, you know, each one's got their own area and goes to the next stonemason. So what is it that you're doing? Oh, I'm working an honorable job to feed my family. He feels kind of lit up about it, right? And then. The person goes to the third stonemason and asks what they're doing. And this person talks about contributing to the future of this broader vision of this multi-generational temple. It's going to take hundreds of years, but just is lit up. Not only do I get to feed my family doing this, not only am I making a living, but I'm contributing to this beautiful vision, something bigger than me. I wonder which one's the most happy with their job, right? Exact same activity. Three very different perspectives on the story of what it is. So reframing can change the attitude of the mind, the heart completely about without the external circumstances necessarily needing to change. It can also change behavior and help people to let go of harmful actions and embrace beneficial actions, beneficial ways of living. And the Buddha did this quite famously with um, this 
mass murderer named Angulimala. Many of you have heard this story. He was terrorizing the entire region. And it turns out, I'm not going to go to the whole backstory today, though I've told it in the past. Angulimala's original name had been Ahimsa, which means non-harming in Pali and Sanskrit. And he'd been this like dedicated student, deeply, deeply kind of spiritual, and had been betrayed by his spiritual teacher. And his spiritual teacher convinced him that in order to make progress, Angulimala, as he came to be called, would need to kill a hundred people and dedicate the garland of their fingers to the teacher. Angulimala means necklace of fingers. So he's terrorizing the area, and the Buddha is warned not to go through the forest where Angulimala is lurking. But he does. And Angulimala tries to chase him down to kill him. The Buddha keeps walking. Angulimala is running. Buddha is moving slowly. Angulimala is moving fast. And Angulimala is not able to catch up with this monk who's calmly walking. Eventually, out of breath and frustrated, he yells, stop, monk, stop. And the Buddha stops and in a very dignified way turns around and says, I have stopped, Angulimala. It's time for you to stop. And at that, it was like a sword cut through the delusion that this man had been laboring under, harming under. And he kind of just fell down in the moment with the gravity of what he'd been doing, having finally encountered a true spiritual teacher, an ethical one, and transformed from this mass murderer to a monk one who's gone forth, committed his life to harmlessness from then on. So the Buddha shifted him back to, and in fact named him as Ahimsa again, non-harming. So you see the different relationships of the story. Angulimala's story changed twice significantly. And having someone willing to face him with the truth shifted his entire life trajectory. A shift of story can also be deeply healing. The, um, the woman, Kisukotami, bereaved of her son, couldn't accept his death, couldn't accept the tremendous loss of this prized, beloved child. And she was mad with grief and going from village house to village house asking, please heal my son, please heal my son. And the villagers just didn't know what to do with her. Eventually the Buddha came into town and she approached him. And instead of trying to argue with her, he said, I'll tell you what you do. Leave him here. And I want you to go and find a mustard seed, just one mustard seed from any house in this village that has never been touched by death. And that will be the medicine. And of course she does. She tries. And what she discovers time after time is there is no house, no family, no person untouched by death. 
But her way of approaching it by asking this question opens up healing and conversation between herself and her neighbors. They talk about their tragedies. And she deeply comes to understand that she's not alone. There's common humanity. That suffering went from a source of alienation to community connection. And by the time she got back to the Buddha, she understood and was able to let person go. Again, the story shifted from the suffering being all the locus of this one person, genuine suffering, to the bigger picture, the wider, wider cloth, as Naomi, she had nice. So that's a little bit of the reframing of what stories, the power of reframing stories. Often, as I mentioned earlier, for us as practitioners, the emphasis instead of working with stories is for very good reason on disidentifying from them or letting them go, right? And this can be a crucial step, sometimes to separating a story from experiential reality, from um, our lives being run by the virtual reality engine between our ears. David Loy, Buddhist teacher, writes, unaware that our stories are stories, we usually experience them as the world. We take for granted that the world we experience is just the way things are. But our concepts, our ideas about the world, like the stories they're part of, strongly affect our perception of reality. They shape it, right? So this disidentification process can be incredibly helpful to reshaping our very relationship with reality itself, with ourselves as well. And as many of you well know, the first step to that is often shifting to felt experience in the moment, sensation, sound. Breath, awareness itself. The feeling tone, noticing. It can cut through so much just to notice the feeling tone, the Vedana. Is this pleasant? Is this unpleasant? Is this neither pleasant or unpleasant? That always then shifts us into the moment the felt physical reality and our relationship to it, rather than the story. The body, Vedana, is always here. It's always now. I'm pretty sure I've talked about in this group before. I came to practice through what is called the dukkha doorway through pain. And I had this awful chronic pain condition that didn't seem to ever let up. And what I hadn't been able to see through the story of the pain never letting up was that my relationship to the pain, anxiety, resistance, anger, fed it. And once the story dropped away, what actually became true was that there were all these moments with no pain, little tiny moments through the day. 
where it dropped away, when it became a shifting kaleidoscope of sensation, instead of something to fight against, it stopped being a big block or wall and became something far more amorphous. And then it was possible to find the moments of joy, of ease, of contentment, even equanimity in that. It's like the gaps between raindrops and a rainstorm. Right? I'm getting wet, but there's also a lot of not wet happening. So that's the first way of starting to separate the story from the experiential reality to disidentify. And another way which students of Andrea Fella, the person who has taught this group for many years, know is through inquiry or investigation, right? Turning the inquiry, the curiosity of the mind back onto the process of experience itself. Dhamma vichaya is the Pali. And it's one of the effectors of awakening for a very good reason. It's a vital part of the liberative process because it can, this curiosity, this looking back at the moment, can find that little space between experience and our reaction to it. Between experience and even Vedana, the feeling tone, is a subtle judgment often. Not always, but often. Sensation does not have to mean like or dislike. Noticing sensation and the interpretation of it at the level of Pleasant and unpleasant can start to shift it. And that becomes a very powerful way of freeing the heart and mind from the cycle of suffering. The process of dependent arising or dependent origination. So when working with stories, a great first step is to notice and acknowledge suffering or lack of suffering. That simple or pleasant or unpleasant, is this doing me any good, or is it just awful, or is this joyful? Maybe there's something really helpful. It's very effective in getting some space, and sometimes if a story is really strong and unhelpful, probably never happens to any of you, happens to me sometimes, it's it's helpful to notice the kind of um, atmosphere and the mind around it. So I'm a visual person. So some of us, we think mostly in pictures or even movies. So noticing the tint of the movie, is it like a film noir? Is it an action movie? Is it brooding like a horror film? Or is it light and beautiful? Or for those who are more auditory, what's the music underneath? What's the soundtrack? Or for those whose thoughts tend to be more concepts, what's the tone of the words, the attitude in the words themselves, these concepts? Angry and driving, sorrowful, optimistic, equanimous. That begins to separate between reality and interpretation. 
Another really helpful thing is to check for unacknowledged emotion. And this will often tap us into whatever is fueling, whatever is the engine of the story itself. It's like all this like repeated story. Often there's some strong emotion underneath that. It could be anxiety or hurt or hope and optimism. But often acknowledging the story and then acknowledging the emotion can help tease that apart and can take the power, the sting, if it's not a pleasant power of the story, and just kind of unknit it. I find it also really helpful to check for internal contention, internal conflict. It's a big driver of story. It's just simply humbling how often if someone else is the bad guy, if I look really carefully within, there might be something I'm not so proud of either in there. Right? And just coming to the simplicity of that and acknowledging it can just unravel the whole thing. And it's not that there's not, for example, some problem that occurred or there's not unacceptable behavior, but it releases the great story of me from needing to be center stage and opens up the possibility that, oh, maybe that person was having a terrible day. Or maybe they cut me off on the highway because they were trying to get their kid to the hospital or whatever, but a bigger sense of possibility that includes some compassion. There's so many causes and conditions. We can't possibly know all of them, even for ourselves, let alone for someone else. And this gets at the sort of third way of another way. Um, of, of relating to story, which is to notice any view, opinion, bias as such. Not as something to blame oneself over, just as, okay, that's there. Views shape perceptions, which shape views, which shape perceptions. And they kind of cycle like that. Bikru Bodhi has this phrase, it's very closely related to this, um, and he calls it the vortex, basically. It's like an engine of just drives things, right? And it's a vortex, he doesn't use this word, but I will, of delusion often, right? So that can be shaped by our identification with or history related to a person or situation or our views of ourselves, it's also that shaping process, Bhikkhu Bodhi again um, translates Madhurma Nikaya, middle length discourse is 19, and this is on a lot of places. Whatever a bhikkhu, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of their mind. Right. So there are all these causes and conditions flowing into this. And Humility can be key, as so can self-compassion. I think of all these causes and conditions as being the river in which we're kayaking, right? 
I've talked about this before in this group. We don't pick the conditions of the river that day. But there is choice. There's efficacy on navigating it. Some of you, how many of you have seen the movie, um, I'm blanking, Rashanon? Rashanon? Do you know this movie? Yes. Okay. A few people. Yeah. So this is um, a classic film by Akira Kurosawa. And basically, it's a movie that tells the same story a number of times from different perspectives of witnesses of the crime. And most of those perspectives, perhaps all of them, it has been a decade or so since I've looked at this film, are, shall we say, shaped significantly by a person's self-interest in the story. And it's, it's interesting because in the film, it really shifts. The story is completely different. And in real life, Witness disparities can be that different. And this can be for a crime or it can be as simple as a sports game, right? So practicing humility can be really key. And another way of doing this is Andrea Fellow at one point described it as assigning a believability index to what I think happened. A believability index. Are you sure? Are you sure? How sure are you? Right. There was a point in my practice that I had that taped to my bathroom mirror. Really? Sure. So the fourth and final way is to intentionally try on Yoniso Manisakara, wise view, wise attention, and wise view. Yoniso Manisakara's wise attention or profound attention. Noticing the depths within. And using the simple lens of the Four Noble Truths. This is suffering. This in this moment is the arising of suffering. And often coming, truing up with those can be enough to allow a large amount of unnecessary suffering to drop away, the ceasing of suffering in the moment, even momentarily. And then the real art of this is placing trust in the path to the ceasing of suffering. The path of practice itself, checking the attitude, noticing the mood and the mind, helps shift to this point of view of this simplicity, this clarity. It's at some level taking refuge in the moment itself and in the Buddha's brilliance and analysis of the Four Noble Truths. Trusting that. Sometimes it's available viscerally and sometimes it's more of a matter of confidence that it can happen. So in conclusion, practicing with stories, it can empower each of us to reshape, reframe the ways we make sense of life experience, 
and the ways that we drop away from our own narratives, reshape our own narratives, have humility, humility about others' narratives, all for the purpose of becoming kinder, wiser, more aware, more awake, until such a time as the stories of suffering drops away completely. So thank you for your kind attention to my story today. And I'm going to pause the recording so that we can speak freely if anyone has questions, comments, insights. They're very welcome. We have the practice we've done here together. Be a cause and condition for greater freedom, peace, kindness, compassion, and awakening in ourselves and in all of those who our story touches, our life touches, and all of those who they touch, and so on, weaving outward and outward. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings know the highest joy of awakening. Thanks, everybody. Feel free to unmute and say goodbye if you like. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Don. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank Very you. helpful. Thank you. Bye. Such a good talk. Thank you.